Hey everybody, welcome back to Toes on the Line. This is Gio Grassi, and I know I slacked off, man. No episode last week, man. I've been slacking. Holiday season coming in. Uh, real busy, you know, with the holiday shopping and whatnot. But I'm not going to lie, man. Not too busy staying at home. You know, second quarantine period. You know, we're pretty much done for the semester till like mid-January, early February, whatever the case is. But anyway, the best thing that happened to me so far at the end of 2020, your boy is back in the fantasy football championship game. And guess what? I'm going up against the same guy I played last year. The same guy I beat last year. Joe Malfa. I'm going to give you the shout out. Joe Malfa. It's a University of Maryland alum. College Park Turtle Mafia. That's what he calls himself in the league. But I beat him last year for the ring. And I'm going... What's up, man? Lamar Jackson's finally showing back up in the fantasy world. And I know, I know, I know these players don't care about people who use them in fantasy football and whatnot. Whatever the case is. That's fine. I'm okay with that. Because guess what? If I was a player, I wouldn't give a damn anyway. But Lamar Jackson, I want to thank you so much, baby. Because you are playing phenomenal football. And people have doubted you and doubted you. And they continue to doubt you after an MVP season last year. And he's getting hot at the right time of year. And I'm loving it, man. Good football. And I won yesterday, 107 to 104. You know, and um, big shout out to the Cincinnati Bengals. Holding the Pittsburgh Steelers receiving core uh, somewhat on mute. Um, the guy went up against, I was up 15, he had Deontay Johnson. I got nervous when he scored that touchdown there in the third quarter. I'm like, oh shoot, now I got to watch this game. You know, and, you know. but then he, you know, something happened to him. He got hurt. I don't know what happened to him. And I, don't, I never wish injury on nobody. You know what I'm saying? Fantasy football, I just wish that, you know, the scheme changes as the game goes along. That's the type of guy I am. I never wish for a guy to get hurt because that's their payroll, man. That's the livelihood. That's wrong. You can't wish injury on nobody. And guess what? You can't be pissed at a guy that doesn't produce for you and your fantasy team. Because guess what? It's fantasy. It's just fun and game at the end of the day. But Deontay Johnson, yeah. I don't know if he cramped or if he seriously got hurt on that one play. But he went down and um, he came back in the game. But that was it for him. He, he never really had another catch after that. You know, they had the, the pass interference call on the goal line, which helped because it was a throw to Deontay. And that put Pitt on the one, and Benny Snell ran it in. But, uh, yeah, shout-outs, man. Joe, Joe Malfa, you get it this week. And uh, the Cincinnati Bengals defense, y'all get it as a whole, baby. Appreciate that. Um, so, y'all going to find out, man. Am I going to repeat as champion or what, man? Uh, Sean Holland, he crowned me as the Bill Belichick of fantasy football. And I'll tell you why. Because I'm always either in the semifinal or the final for, like, the last five or six years. Now, I'm, I may be lying when I say semifinal or final, but I'm always up there. Since 2015, man, I'm always in there. All right? There might be two seasons when I'm not in the semifinal, but I'm in the playoffs and I'm competing. I know how to pick these players. I know when these players are going to pop, man. Shoot, and I had a terrible draft this year, man. I'm telling you. Le'Veon Bell, my second round pick, and he's starting this week, so it might have might have been a blessing in disguise. But anyway, enough of that. I'm just excited, man. I'm excited as hell, man. I'm excited as hell, but... But enough about the fantasy football, man. Let's get into today's episode. I'm bringing on Lee Taft today, everyone. Lee Taft, the speed guy. I like to call him LT on this episode, man, because he just brings a lot of energy, a lot of juice, and a lot of knowledge um, that I never really foresaw in trying to develop or train speed in an athlete or just a person in general. 
And Lee talked a lot about reactive speed and how your cognitive role plays a major effect on how to be fast and reactive in sport. And he talked about how recognition time, um, for example, if you're a defensive back and you're backpedaling and the receiver's running right at you and then boom, he, he breaks down and makes a move. And you have to read and react to what he is about to do. So your anticipation and being able to react off of that and, and accelerate and get there to point A to point B. And it, it just blew my mind when he talked about that stuff. I'm like, shoot, damn, recognition time. That's recognition speed. That's what it was. You know, so fun episode. I, I, you know, get your pen, get your notepad out because I, I think you're going to write down a lot. And I'll be honest, I think this is probably one of the best episodes I've um, recorded with a guest. And I think Lee brought a lot of valuable information here. So get ready, line them up. Lock and load, get ready to go. Welcome to the Toes on the Line podcast. I'm your host, Gio Grassi. Today, I have a special guest. I'd like to call him a Hall of Famer. I have LT, the LT, not 56 from the Giants. I'm talking about Lee Taft. The speed guy, Lee. Thanks for coming on, Coach. Go ahead, GM. I appreciate it, man. Being compared to LT, that's that's something. That's a first. And <laughs> thank you, man. Big time, man. No problem. And listen, you are the strength and conditioning LT because what you brought to the table throughout your coaching career and what you continue to bring is just paramount. I mean, it's unbelievable stuff. So, uh, Coach Tap, thanks for coming on again. I mean, if you could just take some time to. Uh, give a short background on yourself because you've been coaching for quite some time. And if <laughs> you can uh, try to sum it all up. Um, so our listeners can actually know where you came from and how you got started into the uh, strength and conditioning game. Oh, absolutely. I know. I appreciate the opportunity to share it. Um, so I started as a teacher. I was a phys ed teacher and started in 1989. And I was kind of, even at that time, I was kind of like the de facto strength coach for the school and speed coach. I kind of did, you know, a little bit of everything there. I, I taught phys ed. I was a track coach, a football coach and basketball coach. After a couple of years, I left and I got full time into strength and conditioning. I went to Bolateri's Tennis Academy, which is now known as IMG, um, and I was, uh, you know, I was responsible for all the speed and strength for the athletes I worked with there. And then I went to another academy in Florida and uh, worked there for a while. And then from that point, I just got full into the business of it, and I started, you know, I opened up. Uh, several speed academies and, uh, you know, being from New York, I had uh, several up there. And, uh, um, you know, over the years, I've grown into, uh, you know, like a consultant as well. It just that's kind of the path we seem to take the more we go through this. And so a little over 30 years now, I'm here and privileged to be on your podcast. Listen, I'm privileged for having you on, so don't, <laughs> don't worry about that part, baby. Um, <laughs> but listen, a quick question. You said IMG Academy. Did you help start that business up, or was it just already running? Yeah, and what happened was, so when I was at Bulletary's, when I was there, it was, there were like 75 tennis courts, and that was it. Okay. And uh, then we had our strength, you know, our strength facility, which was not much. It was small. And just as I was getting ready to leave, actually, IMG had bought it and they actually came to me and asked if I wanted to stay on. And, um, you know, it ended up, you know, they were offering like $13,000 for the year. I'm like, gosh, I said, I, I can't, you know, I was, I had been in, uh, you know, as a professional for about four or five years. I mean, I just, that was so low of an income, I couldn't do it, which right. was too bad because it would have been neat to be there. But 
so I moved on and then I, that's when I kind of started on my own, uh, kind of private practice. So, yeah. Nice. Good for you. And you know, you're known, I guess on, on the global stage as the speed guy, how did you commit to just speed training in that niche? Um, and obviously you, you do do strength training and stuff like that, but how, why did you just commit to just being a speed guy? And obviously it panned out for you. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's funny cause I get asked this a lot and so someone several years ago, I don't know, it could have been 20 years ago, said that name <laughs> one time and then it just stuck. And uh, of course, the Internet got bigger and bigger and people would say that. And so it kind of stuck. Well, I had learned um, early on if you get known for something or if you're good at something and you're producing results, which they call a niche. They're like, stick with it and grow it. So I was smart enough to say, well, all right, people know me in the speed realm. So I just grew it. So I started doing, you know, any articles or videos or clinics. I just based it around speed. And so it just kept, kept growing a stronger and stronger uh, niche for me as the guy that teaches speed. But what I did was, you know, I, I've coached track for years. I've coached, you know, sprinters. I've coached a lot of linear, but I got known for multi-directional speed. And uh, again, I just, you know, I paid attention to what the market wanted and that uh, people wanted to know more about this and, and the different concepts that I came up with. So, you know, just over the years, I, uh, you know, I just kept growing it and growing it and it's done well. And like you said, you know, I love strength. I mean, I love doing strength training and stuff, but I also know what pays the bills and, and speed yeah. was the, that was the conduit to me being more successful in, uh, in uh, you know, creating courses and clinics and products of that, of that nature. Right. How, I feel like nowadays it's all about speed. People just want to be fast. They, they see the game, you know, the uh, NFL's faster, basketball's way faster than what it was in the 90s. How was it for you in the 90s trying to sell someone on speed? I, for some reason, I feel like the speeds were different. People tell me, speeds were not that different compared comparing uh, NFL players from the 80s and 90s to today's NFL. Um, but how was it for you as a coach or as an up-and-coming business person um, selling speed over strength? Yeah, it was tough. It was very tough because back then in the 80s and 90s, uh, you know, powerlifting was getting big, you know, yeah. bigger, faster, stronger. You know, the company itself was big and a lot of the high schools were, you know, they were they were competing in powerlifting, and they're like, ah, we get strong, we'll get faster naturally. And and I'm trying to tell them, I'm like, okay, I I get it, strength is so critical, but there's technical aspects that can make us move better and be safer. And and you know, mutual friends that you and I have, uh, you know, uh, you know, Bill Parisi and Martin Rooney, guys that I've I've known for a long time. We used to talk about how tough it was to get people to understand what we're trying to do and yeah. and i i can remember when i first opened up my first speed academy in 1994 people were like asking like so are you like a ymca or a nautilus what do you like what do you do i'm like well we teach speed they're like well can you actually teach that i'm like yeah we can you know and yeah. so it was it was tough and then you know over time when they start seeing results then you know then the word spreads and then it starts to change and then you know what was funny geo that really helped when commercials on tv like whether it be espn or gatorade or whatever uh you know under armor started showing you know how they show these athletes doing some kind of speed drill and something explosive 
that's when they started to get it. It was kind of like, oh, so that's what you're doing. You're teaching them to be faster and more explosive and calm. Mm. And I'm like, yes, that's it. So, so yeah, it took some time. It was tough to convince them. And uh, still to this day, you you have people that are diehard. Like, I, all you have to do is lift and you'll get faster. I'm like, well, there's a little bit more to it than that. But but at least at least they're lifting. Yeah. Now, I feel like, I feel like that was a conversation in the 90s, right? How do, you, how do you teach somebody speed? How do you get somebody to buy into speed? What about in today's world, 2020? Now, forget the pandemic, 2020. Everyone believes if they train with, you know, whatever, some type of speed device or equipment or coach, they will be faster. How do you, <laughs> how do you break down the conversation where it's like, well, you're a slow twitch athlete or number one, number two, you know, you might not have the genetic ceiling to get faster you know how's the conversation going these days because i feel like nowadays everyone believes they can be faster yeah oh yeah without a doubt and and like you said they they have all these different techniques all these different types of drills and cone drills and discs and everything that they use and i'm like everything has a place if you know why you're using it Mm. let's not forget it's still about producing force in the ground at the right angle and it's about uh, having a relative strength to your body mass and being able to produce that force quick. So I said, we don't have to get too fancy. We just have to be consistent in our training. And the other part of it is, and this was probably my biggest sell years ago and, and even today, is so much of speed because, because sports are getting so much faster, like tennis and basketball and football. It's just, it's fast. You know, they pass and they, they hit so much harder. Mm-hmm. is the ability to perceive and predict movements a little bit sooner. And so it's now using drills such as reactive drills that force athletes to see angles better, pursue angles are better, um, being able to see maybe a, a tilt or a lean of their opponent that kind of tips them off as to where they may be cutting or the ball might be going those are the things that we try to work on a lot now with our athletes where we try to get them in situations where they have to read early and then plan quickly and then solve the problem, solve that task really quick. And then even if they're not the most gifted, genetically gifted athlete, if we can get them to move like a split second early, they, they appear really fast. They appear quick because they're always in the right place. So that's kind of the next level training that we're trying to get to now is you got to see things early, but you do that by watching body language. Mm. That's, that's almost like you're training uh, with like anticipation or, or uh, recognition or so. Exactly. Yes, exactly. That's pretty, that's pretty cool. And it's funny because I always tell um, kids when I coach them, I'm like, hey, listen, you don't got to be the fastest guy to run a 5-10-5. If your technique is sharp and you know how to hit these angles, listen, I could run a good time. And I'm not fast at all in the 40, you know? Um, exactly. Yeah, yeah, I think you hit the nail right, right on the head there. You know, it's all about, you know, force production and right angles and, you know, these techniques, put your body in certain positions, reading the opponent's body positions, just anticipating their next movement. Um, it's funny because a friend of mine, he, co- he coaches down at uh, Michael Johnson Performance in Dallas. They have some TV set up where, um, it's for it's for football defensive backs where they're looking at the receiver coming out of his stance, and then the screen goes black, and then it comes up with a couple options, and you have to guess the route that the receiver is going to run based on the movement that he just showed on the screen. Do you think that's an effective tool? I think that's cool. I think that's really cool because have, have you heard of it before? Or no, I have. I don't I know have, the name I've of that. It. Yep, I've heard of that. With um, they, they've done it with other sports as well, where it goes okay. blank for a second. Yep. And, um, and because 
you know, in some sports, it's like, you know, within anything under two tenths of a second, you know, like you're not going to pick it up anyway, you know, mm -hmm. your vision just because of your blink rate and stuff. So it's um, so, yeah, no, I think what happens is the better this is why more experienced athletes can appear faster, even if they're not faster on like a typical maybe a 40 yard dash or something like that. It's because they have the experience. They see body leans. They, they see past movements and they correlate it really quick to the potential options that player has. So if you take a, let's stay with a cornerback, the example you used, if you take someone, you know, like Deion Sanders, who's incredibly, incredibly fast, but if you took him maybe as a freshman in college versus, you know, eight years into the NFL, he has seen so much, so many things. There's probably not a lot of uh, escape moves that an offensive player off the line can use that he hasn't seen. And then he knows his next footwork. And then he has counter moves to that. And that's why experience helps athletes appear to be quicker. Huh. That, that, that's, that's fascinating. That's fascinating. I never thought about that. That's it's good neat. stuff. It, no, yeah, it really, really is. Neat. I'm, I'm just like staring off into my wall right now thinking about <laughs> trying to think of another <laughs> example. <laughs> it's funny. I think about myself when I play basketball. And listen, I'm not a great basketball player by any means, you know, but I, I, play, I play the game. Never played for a team, but I play outside. And every time I'm guarding someone and they seem to make a move and they get around me quick, I'm like, why the hell am I? I have the worst defensive first step in basketball, and I don't know why, but I'm going to try that next time I play, Lee. I'm going to anticipate where this guy's going to go, man. I might, I might just give him a lane and run with him. But there you anyway, go. Yeah, but that, 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 that's fascinating stuff you just mentioned. Now, does that tie into your speed training philosophy or what is your philosophy and what, do you, uh, like, what are kind of your, um, your go-tos? Yeah, yeah. Over the years, from, from the early days of training till now, I, I always, even way back then, I always understood reactive training and, and uh, perception was really important. But I did a lot of it from the standpoint of these closed tight cone drills. Now I am so much more open based. In other words, I want to see the athletes read, react, move based off some kind of stimulus. It could be chasing a teammate. It could be me pointing in a particular direction. They don't know yet until I point. And what I want to do is I want to see them move. And then that allows me to start to put together a game plan for them. Like, okay, they don't cut really well when they go to their left and have to go right or they don't open their hips really well, moving to their right, or something of that nature, then I can put together strategies, or what I like to call correctives, to be able to, to, be able to help them move. So my philosophy is I want to see athletes move as uh, innate as possible, as free as possible. I don't want to encumber them too much until I need to, and, and then I need to make corrections. And I try to give them as much context as possible. So if I were to give you a just a random drill, maybe a random cone drill, you, you, know, you might get good at it and go through it, but you don't have any context. But Gio, if I just had you move you know, multiple times in this reaction drill and you kept stumbling and kept losing your balance, now you have context as to why I'm giving you the drill to trying to clean up that stumbling that you keep doing. So that's why I'm... My philosophy is, let me see you move and earn, my, earn, earn the drill that I'm going to have to give you if I have to. So if you move really, really well and you're, I'm not seeing any major flaws, 
I don't come up with correctives for you because you don't need them. I keep you reacting. And I think one of the, the problems I see is we build a lot of uh, cone drills and things early on, which are great. But if the athlete doesn't have a context as to why they're doing that drill, sometimes there's not as much crossover to the learning process. Mm, okay. Huh. That's interesting because everyone really wants to just go ahead and start. Um, you know, hey, we're going to start with the very basic of movement. But, you know, listening to what you just said, you might have some kids that are too advanced for the basic and some kids that are perfect for the basic. Um, yeah. So why start there? However, um, would you always start with the basics no matter what? I, it depends on the movement because okay. if we look at the basic movement patterns of, of humans for locomotion, for speed, right? So there's basically seven patterns that they have to be able to become good at and just the basic format of those. So I can take an eight-year-old, an 18 or a 28-year-old and give the exact same drill to each one of them because um, uh, movement and agility really doesn't have any age bias, right? Once, unless they're little, like, you know, three years old. But once they're old enough and they, they've had some exposure to sport or movement, it really has no bias. They're not going to get hurt doing a shuffle or a run or whatever. You know, you just don't do anything dangerous with them. Mm -hmm. So I don't have a problem starting an athlete right off with a reactive drill that challenges them because what I'm trying to do is get their brain to go into problem-solving mode, just like they did when they had to learn how to ride a bike. That's when the brain is at its most effective to develop a solid movement pattern skill is when it has to solve the problem. So the more exposure we give it, uh, that athlete, to this maybe a challenging type change of direction, drill, or whatever it is, the better they're going to get because they're going to have to solve the problem. You know? And we can give them cues and feedback, but if we give them too much information, they don't solve the problem as cleanly as they would if they had to do it on their own, just like you do when you ride a bike. Right? They, they don't, we can't teach them how to ride a bike. They just have to, their body figures out how to balance, and they go from there. So, so really, that's, that's how I approach it. You know, I'm not afraid to, to go above what we might call basics or foundational things. Because uh -huh. basic movement is foundational anyway. Right. Okay. So what do you, what do you find in training? Um, like what, what do you think are some, are some like waste of time drills that uh, we might see a lot of? Or what are some fallacies in speed and change of direction training you think you hear a lot about? Yeah. So I, I think one of the things, I'll go kind of to the second part of your question first, okay. is um, – Coaches have a difficult time allowing athletes to express movement innately. So an example of that is if I'm standing in a nice athletic parallel stance, maybe my both toes are on the baseline or the end zone line, and we're going to have to accelerate as a team for 10 yards, right, and see who's quickest. Well, you know, probably 10 out of 10 of the athletes are all going to do what we call a repositioning step or a plyo step or something like that. Most coaches call it a fault step. Well, when they discourage that, that's one of those things where they have to step back and ask, why did every single athlete do that? And, and almost every time we do that drill, why do they keep stepping back, even though I keep telling them not to? Well, it certainly isn't because the athlete's trying to be disrespectful and not listen to you. It's because their current position to create force to move horizontally isn't adequate. So what happens is the central nervous system, based on the sympathetic 
fight or flight teaches us to naturally reposition. When we reposition and a foot goes behind us, which most coaches call a false step, really what's happening is the hips aren't moving backwards. It's just one leg is sticking in the ground and it's creating a stretch shortening cycle. It's creating a nice stiff angle to push the center of mass forward. So that's one of those uh, fallacies that I hear all the time. Coaches are like, no, you can't, you can't take a false step. I'm like, well, there are times maybe when an athlete doesn't need it and they won't. Right. But if they do it, it's because they need it. It's because there was an urgency. They had to go quick and the body had to reposition. Otherwise they wouldn't have used it. So that's one of those things. Um, and then, you know, when it comes to certain drills, one, one thing that I see a lot, like I don't mind any kind of equipment drill, like ladders, cones, whatever. I, I use all things for various reasons. But the ones that I think you got to be careful of is if you're trying to get an athlete to express really quick reactive change of direction or whatever, you got to be careful using implements where they have to put their foot into it. Like if you use a ring, put a ring on the ground and you say, hey, I want your foot to go into that ring before you cut. Well, what happens is the athlete now is trying to target their foot into the ground versus trying to be as quick as they can on the cut. So things like that sometimes can distort how quick the, you want them to be because they're trying to be accurate because you asked them to put their foot into this box or into this ring or next to that cone. And so that kind of changes the intent of the drill. So I know that was a lot of stuff, but hopefully that kind of gives you an idea of my thought process. No, that's, that's great stuff. And I like those examples. Now, I want to go back to the false stepping um, issue that, you know, coaches have with their athletes. Because I used to be that coach that was always like, what the hell are you doing? You're not listening, you're not paying attention, right? But here, <laughs> but listening to you, I'm looking back at myself and say, ah, I'm a terrible coach. I'm a terrible coach. But, <laughs> but um, it's funny because I was actually doing some sprints. I was actually racing a co uh, co-worker of mine back in uh, September. I would fall step every time. And I was like, why the fuck am I fall step? What the hell? I never used to fall step. Now I'm 33. Now I'm slower. Get it. Powers out of the body. hundred percent. Do you think that's, um, cause you mentioned stiffness. Do you think that's an issue in, um, you know, tendon stiffness where they just don't have that elastic ability to stay set and explode from that static position? Or is that just natural response from the brain? Yeah, it's more of a natural response, and there's been quite a bit okay. of research on it as well, and here's why. So you could be very, very strong, because you'll see it with the most elite athletes in pretty much any sport that are incredibly fast, incredibly powerful, but they'll still reposition or, you know, plow step, and it has more to do with the angle of force application into the ground based on where their center of mass is. So if I'm in an athletic stance, so just picture me kind of like standing like a basketball player ready to guard someone. Uh -huh. Well, my center of mass is directly above or sometimes depending on the athlete, how long their legs are, or slightly behind the balls of my feet, which is really the point of push off. So if that's the case, it's extremely difficult for me to take that body weight and just kind of muscle it forward. But when an athlete unconsciously, you know, subconsciously reacts and repositions, they immediately get a force application angle to go forward. So we can force it all we want. And I've tested it for years and years and years and tried to have athletes just stand there and then just go forward. Anytime I made it competitive where they had to accomplish a task quickly, 
I, it was almost like zero percent where they they could actually hold that position and go. So it has more to do with the angle of force application to the direction they want to travel. Gotcha. Okay. So even even if you move that rear leg back a little bit, it's they're, they're still going to fall step. Possibly, it, and it Possibly, depends right. on it depends on the shin angle, right? So gotcha, let's yeah. say I let's say I took my right leg and I went to a heel toe relationship. But even though I'm on a heel-toe relationship, I really drove my shins forward. So they were really pitched forward. So I had a lot of dorsiflexion, and I got up on the balls of the foot. I, I could probably push off from there and be okay. But again, it just depends on the particular athlete and the length of their shanks, like the length of that shin, the length of that uh, femur, you know, different athletes and different lengths, it, it's going to depend on the angle. Everything movement you come down to is physics and biomechanics. And if we can meet those things and the laws of movement, usually we move pretty well. Right. That's interesting stuff. That's good stuff. Talking about shin angles real quick. Um, taller guys that have a hard time maintaining lower um, center, of gra uh, center of mass when moving and acceleration. Um, is there any true way to change that or is their, their angle always going to be up high because they're taller? Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a great question. And I, I had this discussion last week, actually, with a basketball coach. Um, okay. So because you're dealing with, you know, depending on the level, you, you know, major division one to pros, you're dealing with like an average of six, 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 seven guys. So they're, they're big people. So here's the thing with that is everyone has a, a, a uh, relative ability to apply force based on their elastic nature or their strength nature, right? Or power nature. So a powerful athlete likes using muscle, likes getting a little bit lower and pushing through that way. Doesn't mean that they're necessarily really, really quick. It just means they're comfortable there. They like using muscle. As well, if you take that that really stringy, elastic guy that looks like they couldn't pick up a feather, but yet they jump over the rim. Mm -hmm. They're very elastic. Well, if you take that athlete and you ask them to bend their knees way down and get real low in their defensive stance, they, they become much slower because you're now, you've taken them out of what they do well. So what I like to do is I watch athletes move and I recognize you know, this, 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 you know, athlete can move really well with the knees bent quite a bit. This athlete can't. So I don't force them out of it. The only thing I will do is if an athlete, because they're trying to make a sharp uh, change of direction, cut, if they're too high, they just can't get enough of an angle to plant to control their mass and momentum. As where if they're a little bit lower, then they can stick that leg out wider, which now becomes a good deceleration angle which turns into a reacceleration angle. So, so yeah, I, I, that's one thing we got to be careful is we don't want athletes to get too low because you get slower. And here's a, here's a good example uh, that most people will, will understand is if you put, you know, 600 pounds on a squat rack, somebody that's pretty strong could walk up to it, get it on their shoulders, stand up with it and walk back with it. And, probably not have too much difficulty. But if you asked them to squat down, they probably would crush them to the ground. But they can do it because you're stronger when you're, you're straighter, right? So the same thing with speed. If I'm up higher, not that I'm, not that I'm just stronger, but I'm more elastic. 
okay, and I can take advantage of the tenderness, elastic energy that that we the body likes to use because it's free energy. So, so yeah, so that's kind of the way I look at that depth uh, question. That's that's interesting. Now, and I'm always I'm I'm listening to you talk, and I'm thinking about my past coaching. And I'm like, freak, man, I just made a ton of mistakes, but we all do. We all do. But we all do. That's yeah, right. and, and that's the that's the nature of the game. Live and learn and just hope you learn enough to, to continue to do well. But um and you're saying don't put guys in these low positions if they can't get there. So my question is, I don't even know how to form this question. So if a if a guy's had when all right, hold on, let me stop. Let me start over. <laughs> <laughs> If some, when do we correct someone to get low? Is is it when their posture is not looking good, or is it when their mechanics are terrible? Because I mean, we all know like a six eight guy is probably not bending as as great as a five ten guy. That's just facts. But and obviously, you said everyone has their relative. I think you said relative positioning to get into these angles. So when do we start changing angles? Is it when posture is not looking well? Is it when technique has gone out the window, or is it just uh, you know? Relative, like you said, player by player, we don't change it at all. We just look to enhance what they already have. Exactly. Yeah. You. So you. You pretty much nailed it. it is okay. so if they look bad, like if they look technically like gosh, they just they just don't look good, and it's because they're so extended, like they're never really loading at all. Then yeah, we got to get them a little bit lower. But but here's the cool thing: getting them lower might be three to four inches, right? Because if we take you know, a couple degrees at the ankle, a couple degrees at the knee, and a couple degrees at the hip, you just lowered that athlete a decent amount. And that's, that's uh, you know, overall, that's a big different uh, body uh, position for them to handle. Now, if their technique is suffering, and that's why I mentioned, um, like, if an athlete in an athletic stance has to do a shuffle, so they got a, they got a shuffle sideways to, to move. If the lateral gait cycle is dysfunctional or, or low functioning because of they're too extended, they're too tall, then we got to get them a little bit lower so that they can complete the stride, the lateral stride that they're going to have to go through. Those are reasons, just like you mentioned. So either either just their posture looks bad or, or their technique looks really bad. Now, situations apply too, right? So if I'm shuffling and I'm going to have to take some contact, like we will see in basketball, we'll see it in, you know, in football, we'll see it in, in soccer to a degree. If I'm having to fight contact and I'm moving laterally and I'm too tall, well, I'm just, I mean, I, I'm not using my levers really well. So if I squat down a little bit more, I'm a little bit stronger, I can get a little bit bigger base. And I can handle that force better. So it does come down to situations and specific athletes. So yeah, yeah, you nailed it. I mean, that's pretty much it. Gotcha. Okay. Because I'm even thinking about when I was coaching a um, volleyball team here at Fordham not too long ago, and I'm and we we're doing speed training, and I I remember watching them, and I, I went back and watched my video because I filmed some of the uh, drills we do, and I'm like, you know what? I think we're getting too low. I don't think we need to get this low because they don't get that low prior to a jump in the sport. It just it just never happens. So it makes sense now that you're saying it. And I'm looking back at what I thought about, and you're confirming it. I, sh I should just probably change the way I do things going forward. And that, that's, that's pretty interesting stuff there. But yeah, um, it's, it's cool. That's cool to think about. Now, yeah, it, it really is cool to think about and cool to hear, you know, guys like you mention it because it just confirms, you know, it just confirms my thought process from the past. That's all, man. <laughs> and I'm appreciative yeah, yeah. of it. But uh, moving forward, what do, you, what do you think should be eliminated from speed, 
change of direction training, um, you know, whether it be a drill or certain tools or even coaching cues. I mean, I stopped using the coaching cues, stay low because I just, two reasons. One, uh, I don't think there is a low, um, because like you said, everyone has a relative angle. Now that you said that, I'm going to use that more. Uh, but I, I think that staying low really hurt a lot of people's uh, thoughts on how to sprint with good posture, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. So like, what, what do you think should be eliminated, whether it be a drill, an exercise, or a tool? Yeah, that's a good question. So, so certainly, certainly I like what you said. I like the fact of saying staying low without context matters, right? Mm-hmm. If, if, you know, you mentioned the sport volleyball. You got two different things. If I'm a front row player, if I'm a middle blocker, staying low is relative to where I am. If I'm right in the middle getting ready to go up and block, well, I don't want to get too low, right? I got to jump quick. I got to jump high. Yep. But if I'm a if I'm a back row defender, a libero or whatever, I have to be low because my number one job is to protect the ball from hitting the floor. So right, I right. need to be down, right? So so those two, each one of them has to play low enough and be comfortable there. The other one doesn't want to play too low because that hurts their skill set. Um, the other thing is when we run. So um, there's, there's several things with lateral change of direction, like teaching the foot position incorrectly, the direction of the feet, things like that. But when we sprint, like telling an athlete that their arms should always be at 90 degrees, right? We know that's not right. If you just watch sprinters, right? The front side of the arm collapses more, the back side, it opens up more. And when it actually crosses the midline of the hip, your arm is almost completely straight to match the straight opposite leg. So, so those are things that I think we have to recognize. We also have to recognize that sprinters, when they touch down, they don't always um, you know, the heel taps the ground a lot, but we say never let the heel touch, but it does often. There is very few elite sprinters that the heel doesn't just briefly tap the ground. That's part of loading and compliance. Um, so things like that. When it comes to uh, multi-directional speed, we have to understand um, the front side leg. So if I'm shuffling to my right, okay, the okay. front side leg opens up typically, especially if I'm shuffling fast. So it'll open, it'll turn facing that direction. Well, a lot of that has to do with the innate quality of the body to escape, right? To run. So if you if you were chasing me, I would turn real quick and run like a baseball player stealing first base. You know, they turn and they just get in a quick acceleration to escape that space and try to attack second base. Mm-hmm. Same thing, even when I'm shuffling, when I push off hard with my backside leg, the initial action of that front side leg is to externally rotate because that helps me produce more force with the backside leg. That's called action reaction. So things like that, you know, I think we have to understand and the best way to understand is to simply watch. When I started studying movement back in the mid eighties, when I was in college, I just watched and I watched and I watched tons of athletes, lots of film. And I kept noticing, well, Everybody, regardless of their age, was doing just about the same thing. And that's how I started to understand what the nervous system was trying to tell me. And that's where a lot of my, my philosophy and concepts came from. It was just watching movement and understand why the body was doing that. That's interesting with the, with the shuffling and the uh, front side leg opening up. Because you, you always hear coaches yell like, 
gotta stay squared. Stop turning. Uh, stop opening up. Blah blah blah. Those other stuff. But I, I guess at this point, you do want them to prepare to sprint, like you said. Yeah. Yeah. And in, in, in a situation. It's exactly, and it's relative to the speed of the shuffle. So let's say I'm I'm playing tennis and I'm already in the middle of the court or maybe just off a little bit. Well, when I shuffle to the middle, I'm kind of bouncing. My feet are straight. There's no urgency. But if I have to cut you off, Gio, who's trying to drive baseline on me, there's a lot of urgency on my part. I'm going to shuffle with a lot of power, with a lot of length, because I got to get my body in front of your pathway. So that's when I'm going to use the front leg more as a pulling mechanism versus just bouncing like I mentioned in tennis. Gotcha. Okay. So you never want a true squared stance, toes straight ahead when shuffling. Am I right? Not if you're going fast. If you're going gotcha. fast, okay. you, because you have to allow the gait cycle to occur. The back leg pushes, the front side leg prepares to pull. Once the back side leg's done pushing, then the front leg pulls to keep the momentum going, and then the back side leg prepares. So it looks like two bicycle wheels, right? The mm -hmm. back wheel never gets in front and the front wheel never gets in back but they both rotate and so that's kind of what a shuffle looks like i never really want you know my backside leg to cross over to the front not if i'm shuffling anyway so yeah, yeah so it's kind of that mechanism yeah, that's cool stuff so aside from that like when do you think it's the right time to you know start to implement these toys like a sled or a bungee cord uh i'm not a fan of a parachute um just because i think if you sprint with a parachute you can catch the slightest gust of wind and then bang, there goes your hamstring. Um, yeah. Yeah. But, you know, when do you think is the right time to implement these things? When I, I think you use tools when that becomes the best viable option to correct a low functioning uh, pattern. So you got a young kid or it could be an older athlete that's lacking force production when they accelerate. So now what I might do is maybe I'll use a sled. Maybe I'll put a band like you, you're my coach. You might put a band around me and, you know, kind of run slow behind me to make me work a little harder. Or you might put me on a hill. We could say the hill is the tool. Right. Um, so if, if we deem that using those tools is going to solve my problem of maybe taking too short of steps or not pushing hard enough, then we implement the tool. And that's what's really important because – so many people start with the tools when the athlete doesn't have context yet as to why that tool is being applied and what they're supposed to do with it. You know what I mean? Because yeah. you could give them a you could give them a, a resistance and just tell them to run, but if you don't tell them, hey, I need you to make sure your knees are here and your foot's here and your arm action is still doing this, they're just gonna you know they're just gonna go ahead and start moving however they feel. So that's why I'm always about having context then I can go ahead and apply a tool to fix it. It's just like taking medicine, right? You don't just take it. You take it because you're trying to solve something. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. And do you, do you start, not start, but do you utilize those tools, um, you know, once, once you're, say you have a brand new athlete, once that athlete, um, not as mastered, but has, has showed some type of like competence in movement with the basic patterns that you're trying to teach, or do you use it, uh, say you have an athlete, he's not accelerating well, um, he doesn't know how to, you know, obviously produce force in a certain direction, he's not hitting his angles correct, his arm action's all out of whack. Uh, do you even try a sled with him to put him in that angle, or do you try to just, you know, basic wall drives, falling starts, and stuff like that, or, or do you think the sled is the best option to show him what the angle's supposed to feel like when you move? 
Yeah, see, that that's a great question because um, it, it, it really does. And I we all hate this answer, but it does depend because yeah. sometimes the the beginner athlete that's really running poorly will benefit from a little bit of resistance because the resistance can create a stiffening action, almost like this stability because the athlete feels this external load. So they start to get a little bit stronger in their position and to apply force. I've done this for years with younger kids. Well, I just take a very light band, put it around them, and then I'll ask them to shuffle or sprint or even jump because that little extra resistance creates stiffness through the entire body and especially through the core. And then the extremities get the benefit of that. So, but, but having said that, there are sometimes you get an athlete when you apply this external force, now it jacks up their technique. It makes them, it makes them grind too hard and they become less fluid or they flex too much. Like if you, if you use a, a shoulder harness, versus a waist harness, you're going to get a different reaction. And if you don't want an athlete to like have that sensation of flexing forward, you don't want to use a shoulder harness because when you grab my shoulders, my initial reaction is to, to crunch my abs. I want to flex forward mm. because you're pulling my shoulders back. But if, I'm, if I want my athlete to get their hips through when I accelerate, I put the resistance around their waist because their natural reaction is I push my hips through the band. So, so that's why I'm saying sometimes using a corrective tool is perfect. Other times it's the worst thing you could do. You know what I mean? So it's just yeah. kind of playing with it. And sometimes you know, we don't know. We don't know until we do it. And we're like, oh man, I thought that would work, but that actually made it worse. Then you just get rid of it and you restart. Yep. It's the, it's the only field in uh, the world I like to say that trial and error is how we get our job done. You know <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like if, if, exactly. You're, if you're working on Wall Street, you better know what the hell you're talking about, right? Strength coaches is like let's let's try to shoulder harness out. Let's try the uh, the waist harness next weekend. It's funny that you just mentioned that stuff with the shoulder and the waist harness because I never thought of that stuff, and I feel like you just gave us the science behind the shoulder harness versus the uh, the waist harness, and that that's fucking interesting as hell. Right there, so. <laughs> well, and you know what's neat to kind of answer your question about Dude. this when you consider how young our profession is oh you yeah. know like you mentioned wall street or bankers or whatever medical think how old those professions are and how long they've had to to improve it think about ours i mean really in the 70s maybe is when it started to get more organized like the nsca and these things but we're still figuring things out. Like we're still trying to learn a lot about the body. So that's why your answer was perfect. It's like, you know, research figures out what we've been trying for a long time, right? We're, we're the uh -huh. ones who are in the, in the weight room figuring things out. And then research takes that and says, oh yeah, it works or it doesn't. But like, yeah, we already found that out because we, we either failed or succeeded with it. Yeah. And that's awesome. And it's, it's good that, you know, good to hear like guys like yourself, you know, you do your own research, you, you, you tried it, you know, the, the trials stand true. So you stick with it. Or if the trials are no good, you shy away from it. So it's, it's pretty good. Uh, good to hear that stuff. So, um, coach tap, I got one last question for you, man. Awesome. If you were not a strength coach, the speed guy, if you were not doing anything with fitness or strength and conditioning in this world, what else do you see yourself doing? Ooh, man, you know what? I actually think you're the first one, and I've done tons of podcasts. You're the first one to actually ask that question. Yeah. Ah, there <laughs> we go. Uh, I love it. All right, let's think. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
you know, I I really like um, science. I mean, I would probably do something in that realm. You know, even though I'm not, you know, I'm not the you know sharpest tool in the toolkit, but I I really enjoy understanding science and like even the physics side of it and stuff like that that just always has kind of fascinated me even though you know i look at the stuff sometimes and i'm like oh, what the hell am i looking at here but it just for some reason <laughs> i want to figure it out i really like it so i think i would do something in the science field okay and, uh, but man you know that's a great question and because i've never been asked that as to what else i would want to do because my whole life has been athletics my dad my brothers and everybody was a teacher or uh, Coach, so um, yeah, that's a great question. <laughs> yeah, that, that's all. Something with science. I'm the same way. Something with science, either you know, uh, space, animals, so, something. You know, yeah. I, I I couldn't I couldn't work an office job for for my life, man. Hell no. So that ain't. No well, you know what? I'm lying. Maybe my, my wife keeps telling me when I'm done coaching to go work, um, not on Wall Street, but work with you know, um, like mutual funds and stuff. Like, cause I I, I love stocks. I invest in them. I'm always reading up on stuff on the weekends. Um, oh, that's good, but I don't think I could do that as a as a full time job. If you know what I'm saying, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I could probably just do that for me. But you know, good yeah. stuff. Yeah, you know, you start your own business, and then you can set the dress code. <laughs> yeah, you're damn right. That's that's the best job in the world, right there, right? That's right. That's why I got into athletics because I wanted to wear shorts. Yeah, just f fall asleep in them, wake up and bang, <laughs> go to work, right? <laughs> but exactly. uh, coach, I appreciate you coming on today. It's it's uh. True honor, a great pleasure having you on. Um, if some of my listeners want to reach out and get in contact with you, what is the best way? Yeah, they can certainly find me anything uh, on social media at Lee Taft, just at Lee Taft, they'll, they'll find me. Or if they want to directly email me, um, lt at leetaft.com, they can email me. And I'm, I'm very good at getting back to everybody. I, sometimes it takes me a minute, but I, I make sure I respond to everybody. And uh, Gio, you do a great job. This was a lot of fun, and uh, I appreciate you uh, asking me to be a guest. Uh, listen, pleasure's all mine, man. Thank you for coming on, and uh, you know we'll, we'll try to get you back on here another time soon. It was I just fun. It was it. good stuff. Great knowledge, and, and I learned a lot myself actually just doing this thing with you. So uh, hope our listeners take a lot away from you as well. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yep.